The subject of this tape is the oath of Hippocrates and what we can learn from it at this stage of the 20th century. A lot of people are comforted by the thought that the physicians take an oath of Hippocrates. Uh, but what most people are unaware of is that the oath has been radically revised by modern generations so that it bears little obvious relationship to the original. Basically, people like the thoughts that there's historical continuity and that doctors are bound by ethical principles. But as Kierkegaard understood, uh, we're in trouble. He wrote this, A passionate, tumultuous age will overthrow everything, pull everything down. But a revolutionary age that is at the same time reflective and passionless leaves everything standing but cunningly empties it of significance. This is what's been done to the oath of Hippocrates. And my intent in the next few minutes is to discuss what I think are the key features of the oath that have been neglected. I'm not going to spend time on Hippocrates as a historical personage. We're not even sure whether he existed, but clearly a group of Pythagoreans who shared his views did. Uh, what I want to do is to try and get us to think about what is happening to our culture that is reflected in the changes in the oath and whether something needs to be done within the medical profession. What we have retained from the oath of Hippocrates, of course, is the ideas about equality and confidentiality and the absence of exploitation, particularly sexual exploitation, which he understood were necessary. Uh, they're still retained. But there are four features in particular which I think have undergone dramatic changes. And these four issues that I want to talk about are transcendence, the sanctity of life, the nature of a moral ethos, and the nature of physician integrity. Many modern bioethicists, for instance, think that it, it's perfectly appropriate that the oath of Hippocrates should be trashed. It's merely a hangover from a superstitious past. That is because, by and large, modern bioethicists uh, are reductionists. Let's uh, unpack this uh, a little bit further. Transcendence, first of all. We need some basis for behavior. We have to use either a belief in a god, or we have to, in some sense, will ourselves, or there has to be some administrative power that will keep us in order. The problem, of course, is that the relationship between the doctor and the patient and the nature of the power that the doctor has makes it very difficult for the state to set rules that he can then enforce. Take, for instance, what is happening in Holland, where it is acceptable under certain guidelines that patients' lives may be terminated by physicians. Each of the guidelines that were set out has been breached within the first couple of years without serious consequence to the physicians. And what data is available suggests that most physicians who have killed patients have actually uh, falsified the death records to make it appear a natural death and thereby avoid what they consider to be bureaucratic red tape. So state power doesn't determine what will happen and it's not possible, as the Dutch have found, to enforce it. It's, if you tried to enforce it, they argue, probably correctly, they would simply go underground even more and you wouldn't know what was happening. That argument obviously has a lot of defects. As far as self-willing goes, setting our own standards, which many of the oaths, so-called oaths, which students take now, they say, I will hold myself to these things. We all know how quickly we break New Year's resolutions. It seems to me that transcendence is absolutely necessary. Where there is no belief in ultimate consequence for one's behavior, 
utilitarianism will not work to the benefit of the patient, but to the benefit of the most powerful person involved in the relationship. Polanyi understood this some considerable time ago, and I would like to uh, read what he wrote way back in the 60s. He wrote this, The adherents of a great tradition are largely unaware of their own premises, which lie deeply embedded in the unconscious foundations of practice. If the citizens are dedicated to certain transcendent obligations, and particularly to such general ideals as truth, justice, charity, and these are embedded in the tradition of the community to which allegiance is maintained, a great many issues between citizens, and all to some extent, can be left and are necessarily left for individual conscience to decide. The moment, however, a community ceases to be dedicated through its members to transcendent ideals, it can continue to exist undisrupted, only by submission to a single center of unlimited secular power. Polanyi understood what the problem was, that when we lose our transcendent ideals, we are forced, in order to have control, to have greater legislation. But it doesn't work well. I saw this most clearly a few months ago in uh, Cuba, where I was asked to uh, take part in a seminar on ethics in the Department of Marxism and Leninism at the University of Santa Clara. The reason I was asked to do it was that they understood by looking at Eastern Europe that with the collapse of communist power, which maintained an ethics of fear, what they were left with was a vacuum which was rapidly being filled by the mafia. And the people in Cuba were obviously thinking about this. In fact, the professor who was organizing the, the seminar was uh, a man who'd previously taught politics before taking uh, a more serious interest in ethics. His uh, objective was to try and discuss this issue. And I began my section by pointing out that their problem was that they believed that they were products of their genes and their environment. And if that is true, the only thing that gave those that rule reason to do things was their own feelings. And those feelings were not under their control. Freedom had disappeared. They were all creatures driven by instincts. And yet that didn't comfort them. I pointed out that if you go back further and ask yourself, well, what if we are in fact created? What if in fact the message in DNA really does imply a message writer who is infinitely wise compared to us, then any moral instructions that he has given would apply to us all. Then the king, as well as the peasant, would be constrained by those rules and those laws. That has a wonderful effect. Because of the nature of the laws that the Christian culture has been given, it recreates freedom. Freedom can only exist within a context of law. Total libertarianism would be anarchy. And in that anarchy, you would have the kind of situation where everybody has to live behind their fortifications because they can't trust others. So it is transcendence that gives meaning to ethics. Without it, there's always a problem of second-guessing. What's in it for the doctor? What does he want out of this situation? And I have more to say about that in a moment. I love the fact that the Canadian uh, CMDS organization has, as its mission statement, a wonderful quotation from Sydenham, Thomas Sydenham in the 17th century. He wrote this, 
that there were four things that every man must seriously consider. First, that one day he must give an account to the supreme judge of all for the lives entrusted to his care. Secondly, that all his skill and knowledge and energy, as they have been given by God, so they should be exercised for God's glory and the good of mankind, and not for mere gain or ambition. Thirdly, and not more beautifully than truly, let him reflect that he has undertaken the care of no mean creature. For in order that he may estimate the value, the greatness of the human race, the only begotten Son of God himself became a man, and thus ennobled it with his divine dignity, and far more than this, died to redeem it. Fourthly, that the doctor, being himself a mortal man, should be diligent and tender in relieving his suffering patients, insomuch as he himself must one day be a sufferer likewise. That was Thomas Sydenham in the 17th century, the Sydenham of Sydenham's career. Transcendence was alive and well then. He would have opposed any unpredictable utilitarianism. So the first thing that's missing in all our oaths now is a significant base for obliging the physician to behave in a particular fashion. Solomon was right when he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For myself as a Christian physician and for those who are listening to this tape as Christian physicians, the thought that one day uh, our Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant, or will say otherwise, should be motivating, should drive us to higher standards. Reading 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul points out that heaven is not an egalitarian place, that everyone builds on the foundation of Christ, and what he builds with will be tested by fire. And those of us whose lives are not building significant structures will lose in that fire, though we ourselves, if we believe, will be saved. Uh, I find that passage very motivating. So transcendence can really give you reason to be good. Utilitarianism can only give you reason to be good when it's convenient. And state power cannot, in fact, control the physician-patient relationship adequately. That's number one. Number two is the issue of the sanctity of life. This also was at the heart of Hippocrates' insight. One has to remember what pre-Hippocratic medicine was like. Uh, I see pre-Hippocratic medicine in Africa every summer. There are so-called natural healers, and these are people who have real abilities uh, with the herbs and toxins that are contained in tropical plants. But not only can they help, they can also kill and, in fact, they are willing to do so. So, when you go to such a physician, you must always worry whether someone else has paid more for your death than you have paid for your life. And the only way to find out is to take the white powder. When someone dies, almost invariably someone else benefits. Most people die with an estate of some sort. So, pressures will build around the act of dying when it becomes something that can be induced by humankind rather than being something forbidden. To think otherwise is foolish. Let me read to you what Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, said about this. This is Margaret Mead, who no one would call a Christian. Uh, she was a humanist libertarian, but she understood this. She wrote of Hippocrates, for the first time in our tradition, 
there was a complete separation between killing and curing. Throughout the primitive world, the doctor and the sorcerer tended to be the same person. He with the power to kill had the power to cure, including especially the undoing of his own killing activities. With the Greeks, the distinction was made clear. One profession, the followers of Asclepius, were to be dedicated completely to life under all circumstances, regardless of rank, age or intellect. The life of the slave, the life of the emperor, the life of the foreign man, the life of a defective child, they were all to be equal. This is a priceless possession which we cannot afford to tarnish. But society always is attempting to make the physician into a killer. To kill the defective child at birth, to leave the sleeping pills beside the bed of the cancer patient. It is the duty of society to protect the physician from such requests. Now, of course, we're well past that stage as the argument is advancing on the front of euthanasia. But Margaret Mead understood that Hippocrates had transformed the whole process of medicine. See, the interesting thing is that the Hippocratic physicians were a minority group. I'm sure if they were happening today uh, and we were in the situation of already killing with a billing category, so to speak, that the general response of the profession would be, why would you give up a good source of income? The only reason that the profession changed as a whole is that once the Hippocratic physicians made this declaration and it became clear that they believed it and obeyed it, the population wanted a Hippocratic physician. So the other physicians were forced into behaving better than they would otherwise do simply because they wanted to put bread on the table. It wasn't that they were intrinsically more noble than other people. It was simply that Hippocrates had forced nobility into the criteria for the practice of medicine. It was an immense contribution. Of course, this was picked up by Christians. And although Hippocrates swore to Apollo, who was the only god he knew, obviously Christians swore to the, the god that is revealed in the scriptures, which transformed the, the process even further by giving different understandings of compassion, which hardly appears in the Hippocratic uh, corpus of writings. So then hospitals and the whole medical system grew out of the monasteries. We have a long story there, but right at the heart of it is the sanctity of life. And in the Oath of Hippocrates, it is very, very clear what he was saying. And uh, there isn't an oath, except I think in one medical school, that still maintains uh, the Hippocratic Oath. But right in the center is, is this. I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asks for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. That's an astonishingly clear statement. Also in the Oath of Hippocrates, there is a denial of having anything to do with abortion. Both are forbidden by Hippocrates. Such a tradition uh, is unthinkable today where abortion is looked upon as a right. That was unacceptable to uh, Hippocrates. And I believe that if we had been wise when abortion came in, obviously a culture can make its choices and Christ was the ultimate pro-choice person. We live in a democracy and we have to accept the rules of democracy. But we could have argued that if the culture wishes to have abortion, they would be wise to separate it from medicine. And that could easily have been done. And certainly if this culture moves to accepting any form of assisted suicide, one group of people, in my view, should be absolutely forbidden to do it, and that should be physicians. It is not difficult to kill people. It is not difficult to do an abortion 
They should be both placed in separate professions as far as I'm concerned. Then when the consequences of those behaviours become clear, they have not contaminated medicine. So that's number two. Number one was the absence of transcendence in the modern understanding of medicine. Number two was the absence of a complete and absolute uh, submission to the idea of the sanctity of life, which has been removed as well. Thirdly, a moral ethos. The oath of Hippocrates requires the physician to say that they will not teach this art to anyone who does not take this oath. It should be taken at the beginning of medical school, not at the end, and it should be used to weed out those people who do not live within the story of medicine. That's a a thought which is very upsetting to uh, people today because we don't have a moral consensus anymore. We have a, a multiplicity of ideas about good and evil. But Hippocrates understood for the physician to function well, he had to operate within a moral ethos, within a shared understanding of good. This is perhaps most clearly put out in McIntyre's book, uh, After Virtue, in which he shows how this idea has, and its decay is at the heart of our modern problems. Uh, he begins his book, After Virtue, with a wonderful parable. He says, I want you to imagine a know-nothing government taking charge. They decide the problems in the world are due to scientists. So they lynch the scientists, burn the the libraries and blow up the laboratories, only to find that the world is worse rather than better. So they decide to reinvent science. And they pull together little bits of partial equations here, bits of equipment there, and they assemble it into some melange, which they teach to the children by rote. And of course it's totally divorced from any overarching sense of what science is about, and it's totally useless. McIntyre says, I want you to understand that the thesis of my book is that that is exactly where we are now, but not in relation to science, but in relation to morality. We no longer have an overarching sense of what morality is. He then gives a wonderful discussion of Western philosophical history, showing how the big change occurred at the Enlightenment. And the end of his book has a peroration that goes something like this. He says, if you followed my argument this far you will see that I am proposing that we have entered upon a second Dark Ages. But we should not be entirely without hope, because the last time this happened, good men and women withdrew from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium into the task of creating communities within which the virtues could be kept alive, and they succeeded. The only difference is that last time the barbarians were waiting at the gate, and this time... They have been ruling us for quite some time. Here a barbarian is someone who is no longer connected to a story, a cultural story, which enshrines a moral ethos, so that, as Polanyi said, many things can be left undiscussed because behavior is controlled or formed by that moral ethos, which begins in the home. Uh, That this is changing is undeniable. Let me give you just one illustration. I grew up in working-class Birmingham uh, during and shortly after the Second World War. My mother was often out speaking to women's groups, sometimes at night, and she would come back across the city by bus and walk from the bus stop to our home, some ten-minute walk, uh, and my father never gave it a thought. Because in that ethos, that working-class ethos of Birmingham, at that time there was a total intolerance of attacks upon women. So had there been an attack upon her, one scream and all the doors would have opened, I doubt whether the man responsible would have been alive to meet the policeman when he arrived. 
when an ethos is strong in that sense, certain things simply do not happen. And what's happened to us in the last 30 or 40 years where individual choice has been raised to a preeminent position is that we have lost that moral ethos. And so many things that were unacceptable in the past are acceptable now. And that's happened to medicine as well as to the whole culture. So this is the third thing that, that is eroded and that is missing from any modern version of the oath. The next thing to point out is not actually in the oath, it's what is around the oath, and you have to think about it a little bit to see that it's there. There's a missing idea which is dominant in the modern culture, and that is the idea of patient autonomy. There's no thought of that in the oath of Hippocrates. The nonsense of the modern commitment to contract, to client, and to healthcare is all a consequence of this lost understanding. When you are seriously ill, with a septicemia or acute renal failure or something of that sort, any notion that you would choose between physicians or that you would be a client subjectively weighing the benefits of one treatment as against another is absolute nonsense. When you are truly sick, you rely upon the integrity of the physician who cares for you because you have no other option. It is possible to think of having your hernia repaired as something that might be done on a contractual basis. But serious illness does not come in that category. And we need to recognize that. Unless you can trust your physician, unless he has a character that is appropriate, there is no hope. You are at the mercy of whatever upbringing your physician had. And there are parts of the world now where people have been documented to go for surgery and find themselves used as donors for organ parts. That's happened. So we shouldn't bury our heads in the sand as to what kinds of things are possible within human society. What, of course, is driving all this is the denial of what Christians call the doctrine of sin. The only doctrine, as Chesterton would say, that is surely without need of any special evidence, it is self-evident that we are sinful. You only have to ask the question of any audience, is there anyone perfect here? And no one stands up. What they've immediately accepted is that there is a standard of goodness that they recognize and that everyone in the room fails to meet it. Sin is a reality. So to base medicine on anything other than that obvious reality is clearly foolish. The Hippocratic age was one that understood that, and so the patient's defense actually lies in the defense of the physician's integrity. Nowadays, we are putting pressure on students and upon physicians to do things which impugn their own integrity. That is foolishness in the extreme. People who say, well, you may not want to do an abortion, but you must refer for abortion, are impugning the integrity of that physician, and then they expect him to behave with integrity thereafter. You cannot do that. The same thing is happening in politics, where, for political reasons, our representatives are asked to do things that go against their own conscience. And then we complain that they behave unethically later after we have been responsible for destroying their integrity. Physician autonomy and independence of the patient in terms of what he believes is absolutely critical. The patient has a right to know what he believes and therefore to choose his physician on that basis, but absolutely no right to destroy the moral integrity of the physician because that is not in his own interests. 
Contract is not an improvement on covenant. Covenant it was a rich word, no longer understood with the riches of the past. Contract is a word that relates to a business transaction. But in covenant, the idea was that one was stronger than the other, and the relationship was one in which the stronger had obligations. Paul Ramsey, the great ethicist, uh, points out what covenant really implies. He says this, Covenant contains the ideas of justice, fairness, righteousness, faithfulness, canons of loyalty, and the sanctity of life. Hesed and agape in their original tongue. Or charity. All these are some of the names that are given to the moral quality of attitude and action owed to all men by any man who steps into a covenant with another man. This is a a rich concept, uh, ultimately modeled for us by God's commitment to the children of Israel in the Bible. That's what formed Western culture. God's covenant with the Jews has always been kept by God. The Jews have often failed. As one of my Jewish colleagues said to me when I asked him why they survived, and he said, uh, well, it's certainly not due to us. It's this covenant we have, you know. How right he was. That was understood by Hippocrates too, that you have to live within with moral integrity if the profession is to proceed. What comes out of these four characteristics that are now denied? Well, real trust can be based upon these characteristics. Trust requires a fixed character, reliable ethics, hard truth, not soft sincerity. Iris Murdoch some years ago said one of the problems with our culture is that we have substituted for the hard idea of truth the soft idea of sincerity. And one might add that you can be sincerely wrong, as many people in our culture are at the moment, I'm afraid. You can be sincerely wrong in believing that sin is not a real category. The evidence is clearly against you. Now, how does this relate to the teaching of medicine at the moment? Well, the first thing that one has to say is that medicine is being taught at the moment on a biopsychosocial model. This is a totally inadequate model, in my view. I usually say when giving talks on this topic that it is a model that has been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And I can proceed to say that I suspect that very few people understand what I have just said. And neither do you, my dear listener, understand what I have said unless you recognized in the phrase weighed in the balances and found wanting a particular biblical story. What the student understands when I say that the biopsychosocial model is inadequate and that it's been weighed in the balances and found wanting is merely a metaphor from the laboratory. It's a few grams underweight. Well, they're bright, they're intelligent, they can fix that themselves. But that isn't what I said. The point that I'm making comes from Belshazzar's feast. Belshazzar had taken the sacred vessels of the Jews and he had used them for an orgy. In the middle of that orgy, a hand began to write on the wall, many, many tekel yufasin. And naturally, everybody at the feast was frightened, and they sent for Daniel to tell them what the words meant. And Daniel came and he said, Be it known unto you, King Belshazzar, that the words mean that you and your kingdom have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and that your kingdom and your life will be taken away from you. At that very moment, Darius was draining the canals in which he trusted, and he was dead and his kingdom was gone in the morning. I wasn't saying that the biopsychosocial model was a few grams underweight. 
I was saying that it was profanely and profoundly wrong and should be trashed because it denies the spiritual component to our lives. The real questions that confront all patients at some point are the questions of suffering and death and justice. The biopsychosocial model has no answers that are adequate for those. We can process patients. We can treat them with drugs so that death creeps up on them unnoticed. We can shuffle them out of life without pain and without thought. But that's a diminution of what it means to be a human being. The real need is to understand clearly that what Hippocrates understood, that the spiritual dimension, the idea that there is judgment, the idea that our lives have meaning, is actually necessary if we are to understand death. There's a wonderful uh, Jesuit from Seattle, Robert Spitzer, who teaches uh, quantum physics and theology, who has an approach to getting people to think about this, which I want to share with you very briefly. The full thing takes a long while, but the introduction is worthwhile. If we are to understand our lives meaningfully, we must reinterpret the word happiness. Everybody wants to be happy, but the problem with our culture is that we have a diminished understanding of happiness. Happiness for many people today is almost at an animal level. An example would be when you're hungry and you get a good meal, you're happy while you're eating it, it's totally absorbing, and then when you're finished, it's over, that's it. Now that's appropriate when you're hungry, but if you start using food for reasons other than hunger, you have an eating disorder, that's unhappiness one. One of the problems with our students is that they think sex is like eating, so when they're they wish to have sexual satisfaction, they go looking for it in the same way that they look for a meal. But sex divorced from love almost invariably leads first to boredom and then to perversion. That's why we have so many sex manuals on the market, because we are using sex divorced from love. Only within the context of love can sex be meaningful. Without it, you get boredom, perversion. Unhappiness one. The only way out of the unhappiness one is to go to happiness two, and that is when your mind begins to control your will and your passions. When your character is formed in that process, a good education should do that. And whether you become an athlete or an intellectual, the same process is involved. The trouble is that all happiness two type training programs are competitive, and competition always has the unhappiness of anxiety attached to it. So if you're winning, you're somewhat lonely and you're worried that you won't be winning next week. If you're losing, you're already in trouble. If you're in the middle, you're worried where you're going to be next week. It's three ways to neurosis, the problem of the Western world. Unhappiness too. We're committing suicide on an increasing rate because of it. We're in trouble. We're using drugs and alcohol because of it. It's not drug control programs we need. It's happiness understanding programs that we need. The only way out is to go to happiness three, which is to begin to appreciate that there is such a thing as good in and of itself. We all have examples of it. A mother caring for a two-year-old is my favorite example. Nobody can pretend that two-year-olds are pure continuous joy. But caring for them contains happiness because you're doing things that you know to be good for a purpose which is well worthwhile at the end of the day. A child who has been well brought up, who will be grateful to you for what you have done. That's happiness three. Uh, service clubs at their best approach that. CMDS should approach that. 
a good physician doing his job is getting happiness three a lot of the time. The problem with happiness three is that it comes to an end because it's a need love, if you will. Eventually the child grows up and doesn't need its mother anymore. Eventually you retire and you're no longer needed. That's why so many people die after they retire so quickly because their meaning was entirely in need. And when that's taken away, there's no meaning in their lives. That's unhappiness three, the emptiness, which is the curse of so many people today. The only way out is to go to happiness four. And that can only be talked about, really, in anecdotal terms. It's knowing God that we're talking about. As Jesus said in John 17, I am come that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And you can only tell the stories and let people ask the question, have I got there? Do I know what this is about? I had a wonderful example of this told to me a few weeks ago by a colleague from Toronto who uh, told the story of a wonderful, unbelieving Jewish physician who does palliative care in Toronto. And she was asked by a, a peer group to give a lecture on what she did, and they thought that she would come and give all the practical details. But she merely gave a handout for that. And she said, no, I want to talk about the patients. And she told the story of a, a man who was dying at home and wished to die at home, and his family wished him to die at home. And she was called at two in the morning and saying that he was in pain and he was twitching and beginning to convulse, and would she come? So she got up, she always carries a pager for this purpose, and off she went. Well, it turned out that she couldn't control the pain and the convulsions with what she had available to her. So she said to the family, I'm sorry, I know you wanted him to die at home, but it looks as though he'll have to go to hospital. And they said to her, well, before he goes, there's one other thing we'd like to do. He was always a, a very loyal member of the church music group, and we would like them to come and sing to him before he goes. So, in the early hours of the morning, they got some members of the church singing group to come and sing to this man. And as they began to sing, he settled and stopped twitching, stopped convulsing, and was at peace. When they stopped singing, his condition deteriorated, and he started twitching again. They ended up singing to him for almost 24 hours before he died peacefully. Now, what that family had was a demonstration of happiness for and what this wonderful, honest Jewish woman said was, I tell you this story so that you recognize that there are things out there that we do not understand. Now, as Christians, we would say, oh, yes, we do understand. We know what they are. Let me tell you another story to illustrate that point, again from a, another colleague in uh, Toronto who had a patient who came to him with cancer of the colon. He told him that he would have to have an operation and he would almost certainly end up with a colostomy. And the man was very worried about that. Uh, he said, do anything you can to avoid the colostomy. Well, my good friend uh, Sharif Hanna uh, had a dream the night before he did the operation in which he saw the anatomy of the man and that it was a variant of normal and he could, in fact, avoid the colostomy. And when he got in, that's exactly what the situation was. So the man woke up without a colostomy. Sharif said, you couldn't really tell him you had a dream. How would you feel about your surgeon dreaming your operation? But the man was obviously delighted, and for five years the follow-up went well, and then he got a secondary in the liver. That also was removed. But some 18 months or so later, he came back with another inoperable secondary in the liver. And Sharif told him that he would have to die 
fairly soon. And the man said, is there anything that's going to be done about this kind of problem in the future? And Sharif said, well, cryosurgery is emerging as a possibility, but it's experimental. We don't even have the equipment. The man said, buy it. This was his first indication this was a wealthy man because the equipment was $50,000. And Sharif thought, well, he's dying. He doesn't really know what he's saying. But a day or so later, the man said, to whom do I write this check? So Sharif got the appropriate forms, and the man wrote a check for $50,000 to the hospital research program. As he gave the check to Sharif, Sharif said, that's a very Christ-like thing to do. And the man was clearly upset by that comment. Sharif didn't say anything, went about his business, but couldn't forget the phenomenon. So eventually he went back and said, do you mind me asking you why you were upset when I said what you were doing was Christ-like? Because it was. You were doing something for the good of others with no benefit to yourself. And the man said, well, I'm a-religious. I never had any space for spirituality or Christian things in my life, and it just upset me. And Sharif said, would you be interested in why I'm a Christian? And the man said, well, actually, I would. So Sharif told him how he had become a Christian and what difference it had made to his life. And when he'd finished, he said, do you want to respond? And the man said, I need to think about that. Anyway, uh, that Saturday evening, uh, Sharif was speaking in church, and uh, a woman, he shared this man's story and asked them to, to pray about him. And a woman came up afterwards and said, I think I'm supposed to tell you that you'll have another conversation with this man, and he will become a Christian. On that Sunday morning, uh, the man's wife called, very distraught because he'd gone into a coma and hadn't woken up. And there was a lot of unfinished business. They needed to talk, still some more. So Sharif thought about it and then went in and gave him steroids and mannitol. And as he woke up, he woke with a great smile. And Sharif said, you've been thinking. And he said, yes, I want to become a Christian. I know it's a bit late, but that's what I want to do. And so, aided by Sharif, he became a Christian, although he had only eight hours left to live. But those eight hours were a tremendous time of reconciliation and restitution within their family. And he died peacefully, saying to the nurse, if this is dying, why does anyone want to live? His wife and his son had been reconciled to him. And at the memorial service, his son said, if anyone had told me that I would be saying the things that I am now going to say a few weeks ago, I would not have believed them. And then he told the story and said simply, I have a great deal of thinking to do. These are happiness for experiences. And I think as Christian physicians, we have the job of collecting these stories, presenting them, and asking our colleagues, where do you fit these into your understanding of the world? Because you're honest folk. At the very least, unless you're prepared to call us all liars, you have to acknowledge that these things happen and open a file labeled unexplained events. Open up your mind to the possibility that maybe we are not just products of time plus chance, but that we are in fact creatures with a creator who loves us. This would be an entirely different ethos and a renewal of the Hippocratic tradition, because currently we're practicing post-Hippocratic medicine, which will move towards paganism with all that that entails. Let me read to you one particular description of that. 
This is Geoffrey Satinova writing about Western paganism. Pagan society is pantheistic or animistic. Gods and goddesses inhabit the natural world and are one with it. Nature itself is worshipped as divine. There is no serious distinction between creature and creator. Again, on a practical level, this means that men worship not only the nature out there, they also worship their own nature, which is their instincts. That is hunger, sex, aggression, and more generally pleasure. In thus spiritualizing the instincts, pagan worship naturally tends to the violent, the hedonistic, and the orgiastic. In the gratification of these instincts, violent intoxication, temple prostitution, the ritual slaughter of enemies, self-mutilation, even child sacrifice, all these historical phenomena can be understood not as pathological, but as predictable endpoints to the unfettering of human nature. I think that is true. I think the evidence abounds in various areas of medicine. We know what a problem we have in the medical profession with drug and alcohol abuse. We're not different from our society in that, probably slightly worse. In respect of despair and suicide, doctors are high up the list of highly vulnerable groups. Unless we wish to continue on that path, we must once again bring back the key features of the Hippocratic tradition. We must acknowledge transcendence, that we are creatures. We must place the sanctity of life at the center of medicine. We must recognize that medicine can only be carried out within a moral ethos, and that no one has the right to impugn or impinge upon the, the moral integrity of another. These fundamental things have been lost, and we need to bring them back. There's a very practical consequence to this. I think the time is close when we need to establish a listing of Hippocratic physicians. We need to know who amongst our colleagues shares this view. And this is not just going to be evangelical Christians. All Orthodox Christians, Catholic or Protestant, are going to agree to this as are many Muslims and many Jews and many Hindus. The sanctity of life is something that many cultures recognize as critical. If we were listed as such and simply had the commitment that should the government or any organization threaten these four things, the necessity of transcendence, the sanctity of life, the moral ethos, and physician moral integrity, then we would withdraw our labor simultaneously would give us tremendous political power in bargaining for the structure of health care in the future. No government could afford to antagonize 50% of the medical profession if they were organized sufficiently to withdraw their labor on the same day. We are a democracy. There is no longer a moral consensus. But we have a consensus over these issues which is sufficient and was sufficient for 3,000 years to maintain a medical ethos that tradition should be preserved. There should be Hippocratic and non-Hippocratic hospitals, Hippocratic and non-Hippocratic practices, and then let the patients vote with their feet once again. I have no doubt that in fairly short order, the truth that Hippocrates knew and we've forgotten would be re-established to the good of all.